I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. The governors are doing the testing. It's now not up, and it hasn't been up to the federal government. Go ahead. I told them when they put this guy here, it's nothing but trouble. He's a showboat. If you keep talking, I'll leave, and you can have it out with the rest of these people. If you keep talking, I'm going to leave, and you can have it out with them. Just a loud mouth. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. What you just heard was a clip from a confrontation between former President Donald J. Trump and Playboy's White House correspondent Brian Karam. During Trump's four-year term, in the White House, Kiram proved to be a constant source of consternation for the 45th president and his administration. Thanks to his asking pointed questions at White House press briefings and demanding answers to those questions. It led to a number of confrontations between Kiram and either Trump or officials within the Trump White House, culminating in the White House press office suspending Kiram's press pass in late summer of 2019. Kiram fought back by filing a lawsuit, and eventually it was decided in a ruling by Judge David S. Tattle of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia that the White House press office had wrongfully suspended Karam's press pass. All of that, however, is only one small portion of Karam's storied career. He also reported on the ground from Kuwait in the first Gulf War grilled President George H.W. Bush over the claim that the United States had won the war on drugs, interviewed such figures as Watergate burglar G. Gordon Liddy, and became the recipient of a National Press Club Freedom of the Press Award after refusing to reveal the sources that helped him land an interview with a jailed murder suspect. An act which landed Karam in prison, but also illustrated his adherence to journalistic ethics in regards to the matter of protecting one's sources. Put country simple, Brian Karam has led a fascinating life 
with old school sensibilities about journalistic virtues and the role that the press should play as the fourth estate in American society. Which brings us around to his new book, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. It serves as an impassioned treatise on the problems facing news media today and how those problems came to be that tackles such issues as the corporate monopolization of news media, the rise of the late Roger Ills and Fox News, the decline of community media outlets with a local focus, and more. Brian joins us on this edition of Parallax Views to discuss the book as well as a number of his personal experiences as a journalist over the years. And with all that being said, let's get right to the conversation with Brian Karam, author of Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. But first, a word from one of our sponsors. Hey, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist, Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel, or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. Welcome to Parallax Views, a reporter, a journalist that I've wanted to have on the show for a while now. We haven't been able to uh, set things up in the past, especially during the, the Trump presidency, because there was a lot of craziness you were dealing with then. I just want to introduce my audience to Brian Karam, in case they're unfamiliar. Brian is the author of Free the Press, also the White House press correspondent for Playboy. And I would I would describe you as uh, sort of the the pugilist of of journalism in a lot of ways. I hope you don't take that uh, the wrong way. <laughs> uh, I may have to hit you. No, <laughs> no, I have to. I'll I'll take it as it comes, baby. No worries. So, Brian, if you could, uh, maybe you could tell my listeners uh, how you got into reporting and also how you came. Uh, to adopt the approach you have. Like I said, I, I don't know if pugilist is the right word, but you you sort of, uh, you ask the question when others don't necessarily want to. So how did you develop that approach and get into journalism? Uh, well, I, I got into journalism basically because I like to write. And uh, I was on my high school newspaper and um, 
my family's filled with lawyers and they were saying, uh, you know, here, come join the law firm. And I was like, <laughs> no. And so I, I, you know, I went to uh, University of Missouri and pursued my passions and have been a reporter, you know, for about 40 years now. And uh, I, I, I love what I do. It, it gives you a front seat at history. You get to tell people what's going on in the world and you get to see it firsthand. And, uh, uh, you know, it still didn't pay all that great, but you know, Hey, you, you travel around the world on somebody else's nickel. So it's, it, that's a lot of fun. And then my approach is, uh, is really an old school approach. And, you know, I was given, it was Helen Thomas who told me, uh, Brian doesn't matter what the question is, just ask the, you know, the damn question. They may not answer it. You may not like the answer. They may obfuscate it, but if you ask it, uh, then there's no way they can deny that it's been asked. And then, uh, you know, uh, my other mentor, Sam Donaldson, who wrote the foreword for this book, by the way, uh, said, yes, uh, Helen's right. And stick with me and I'll teach you how to yell. So you're heard. So you can be heard. So, I mean, it's you hold truth to power and you hold people accountable and it doesn't matter who they are and you can't back down. Um, we have to realize that, uh, the politicians work for us. We don't work for them. We're not their fans. We're not there to adore them. We're there to ask them hard questions about what it is they're doing, uh, you know, in, in the name of the American people. That's what a democracy is. That's what we do. If you could, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Ellen Thomas. And, you know, I feel like in some ways she may have um, mentored you a bit. And I may have younger she listeners did. that are unfamiliar with her. But, you know, when I was growing up uh, in, in doing newspaper in high school, you know, Ellen Thomas was like my jam. I was like, yeah, that's who I want to be because she was a real firecracker. She did not uh, put up with any BS. No, she was great. Well, I mean, she was her and Sam and there are other people. And I mentioned them in the book who mentored me when I was a young reporter uh, and helped me, you know, uh, get my sea legs. Uh, that's um, I, I, I think Helen was perhaps the quintessential uh White House briefing room reporter. Uh, she had pointed questions and she didn't mind asking a question to anyone about anything at any time. And she was one of the few people I knew who always had a standing invitation to everything going on in DC. If Helen showed up, man, that was an event. So, I mean, that's, she was very good at what she did and that was holding uh, people's feet to the fire. What was your first experience in White House reporting uh, or what were some of the formative experiences with that? Well, my first experience was walking in and meeting her. I mean, I walked in the Brady briefing room in 1986 and she goes, I, she knew my family. We're all Lebanese and she knew uh, my uncle and my great uncle and took me home and made me a, a wonderful Lebanese dinner the first night I met her. And then the second one I met that day was Sam Donaldson. And I had met Sam on the campaign trail in 84. So we already knew each other. We ran across each other many times over the years. He's a really great guy. And Sam said, Brian, you take a look at that first row here in the Brady briefing room. And there's probably 220, 250 years of experience there. And, and listen and learn from all of them. And then he turned and said, and Helen's probably got about 200 years of experience just all by herself. She said something smart to him. Sam said, hey, Helen, it's okay to have an unexpressed thought. And, and uh, Helen said, Sam, when it comes to you, I have a lot of unexpressed thoughts. And I didn't know what else was going to go on in my life, but I knew at that moment in time, I was in the right place at the right time. Those were great people to be around. 
Yeah, it's 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 fascinating too because you look back at someone like Helen Thomas. I mean, she was reporting, you know, going back to you know uh, the Kennedys. I mean, she had so yeah. much experience. And one of the things that you get at in the book is that the uh, White House reporters today don't necessarily have that kind of experience that uh, past iterations of the press corps had. Well, yeah, that's because of the constriction of the news business, which began under Ronald Reagan and every president since then has helped participate in the demise of journalism. And we've built a monolithic power structure in journalism. There are twice the number of people on the planet today as on the day that I was born, half the number of reporters, half the number of outlets. There's something wrong with that. And the government, something seriously wrong with it. Something very terribly, terribly wrong with that. Uh, to, you know, quote Bill Murray and Stripes, we're mutants. We need, uh, you know, we, we definitely need more reporters in the field and more uh, uh, reporting entities. A diversity, Ben Bagdikian said to sustain a democracy, and Ben Bagdikian was uh, from the Washington Post, one of the unsung heroes from the Washington Post. And he said, you know, if you really want to be successful in journalism, we need, need a diversity of ownership. And we don't have that. We have a handful of companies, five or six, that own about 90% of what you see, read, or hear. That's the problem. And until we fix that, it's always going to be a problem. So what would diversity of ownership look like? What do we mean when we use that term? Well, diversity of thought, diversity of uh, race, creed, and color, everyone having a a voice and being able to to, uh, put that voice out there. Uh, The problem, you know, is we, we have some of that in social media with, you know, bloggers and uh, podcasts. And, but a lot of these people are not adherent to journalistic standards. And one of the things I try to do in the book is I recognize that we're always going to have what we have, but we need to school ourselves up. You may not go to a journalism school, but at least adhere to some of the standards. Vet facts, have a, have a, a copy editor, do things like that, and you'll be better off. Yeah, what do you think are some of the problems that younger journalists face? Because I think a lot of times you make a very good point. Lack of experience. Uh, Let's get into that then. Yeah, that's the lack of experiences. You know, you have people that when I was coming up, you had to have three to five years of experience to go anywhere. And now they hire you straight out of college and you're a reporter at the White House and you don't really know what the hell you're doing. And it takes you three to five years to really get your feet wet, know what you're doing and build sources. And then by then you make too much money so you're going to find yourself on the outside looking in and they're going to hire somebody else who's new and younger because they're cheaper. I know people, you know, have been hired to work in the White House in Washington, living in Washington, D.C. They're making 35, 40 grand a year. How the hell do you, 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 that's what kind of reporter are you going to get? You're going to get someone with a lack of experience. And by the way, since they're now in the White House, their lack of experience is going to be combined. That ir- ignorance is going to be combined with the arrogance of having access to sitting on Air Force One and thinking your opinion matters. And that's a huge problem. Uh, we have, I've been on Air Force One, the food's great, but after a while, it's still just an airplane. You're sitting in the back and nobody gives a shit about you. So get over it. I was going to say, do you think that's also a problem uh, with some journalism? Is I, you know, I've seen criticisms of what's been called access journalism. Do you think that's an issue with the press today? Oh, yeah, of course. Access to... You don't want to lose access. That's what it is. If, you, if you're in the White House, who wants to lose the access to all those really nice functions? I don't really give a shit. I've been to all of them. Don't care. Uh, all I want you to do is just shut up, sit down, and answer my questions when I ask them. Other than that, don't really care to spend any time with you. You're not my friend. 
You're not, you're, you're someone that I cover in the new, and we have to realize that, that our sources, uh, the people that we cover are not friends. Now we can be friendly. We can be professional. And after you're out of office and I'm no longer covering you, if we want to become friends, hunky dory, peachy keen, but I can't treat you as my friend and, and then be, you know, uh, able to do my job. I will treat you friendly and professionally, but uh, I, I'm not worried about access and I really don't give a shit uh, if you like me or not. That's I'm not here for that either. Do you think that was a big problem um, during the Trump years? Because I feel like, you know, you, you were well known for uh, riling the feathers of a lot of people in the Trump world, like uh, Sebastian Gorka, you know, uh, you're, you're not a journalist. You're a punk. Yeah, I, I told him to get a job or McEnany's uh, referred to you as the, the, that Playboy reporter, right? So, I mean, do you think that was a problem? Like some journalists were afraid of losing access? Oh, I, I think H.L. Mencken had us nailed. Uh, there's nothing easier than to fool a reporter. We come in eager to get the news and leave as 10 horned statesmen. I think we're very afraid to ruffle feathers. I think there are some that aren't. Uh, and I'm not the only one. And, and I used to be, I would be, Back in the day, I would be, you know, among most reporters that would, uh, you know, push the boundaries. They're there, as you know, Larry Speak said, uh, we won't tell you how to report the news. You don't tell us how to stage it. He was Nixon's deputy press secretary. And as Sam Donaldson said in his own memoirs, he said, you know, um, they're there to put their best foot forward. I, I don't begrudge them that. That's, that's what they're there for. I'm there to fact check and to make sure that what they're saying is true. So I will hold truth to power. I will ask you a difficult question. Not always going to be the best question of the day, maybe the worst, but I'll, you know, I'll keep slugging it out. And I, I don't really care whether you like me or not. Um, I'm not there to be liked. I'm there to do a job. So, you know, take your lumps like a man and shut up <laughs> or at least tell me what the hell's going on. Be factual. And, and we've had problems with, a lack of that in the last few years. How would you sum up your experience of reporting on the uh, Trump presidency? Because that was a very wild time. And I, I think you were out there on the, on the front lines. I mean, Trump was not a big fan. So how did you sort of navigate things? I just didn't give a shit. <laughs> I still don't give a shit. I'm, I'm, look up, don't give a shit in a dictionary. And here I am. I don't give a shit. I'm going to ask the questions. I don't care if you like me. I don't care if you dislike me. I don't give a shit if you want to take me home and make me dinner or uh, take me home and try and beat me with a baseball bat. I'll be here tomorrow. And, you know, when I'm there, just answer the damn question because I'm going to ask it. So uh, you just deal with it the way you deal with anything else. Someone asked me one time, was that the most difficult thing you ever had to do as a reporter? And no, it, it wasn't. Covering the uh, Donald Trump actually was the same as covering every other president for me. The most difficult, you know, and, it, it, and I say that, you know, the process was the same. It wasn't easy getting answers, but the process for me is the same with every president. Each one has its own particular unique problems. Trump happened to be a, tra a traitorous, a seditionist who led an insurrection, who does a narcissist who doesn't care about facts or anything else. He only cares about himself. That was kind of unique. But the most difficult thing I've ever had to do as a reporter is uh, talk to parents of dead kids 
and interview them. And uh, that is far away, you know, as a crime reporter and as a reporter for America's Most Wanted. Those are the most difficult things I've ever had to do as a reporter. If Not- you could, how how do you approach talking to parents like that? Because I've had this issue, too, where I've done some uh, interviews with uh, parents who whose uh, children have been victims of crimes and whatnot. And it's very hard to do because uh, things can get very emotional and, you know, you want to be ethical and you want to, you know, not try to exploit uh, these subjects. So uh, how do you sort of uh, approach well, things ethically? With America's Most Wanted, it was quite easy because you would say, listen, I'm not here like the regular media. I'm here and I have to ask you some questions that are going to be tough. But uh, at the end of the day, something you remember, something you say, my, it, it, it may be some most innocuous thing in the world. You know, oh, well, he was smoking a, a, a camel, you know, or it could be, well, I saw him walk and he winked, you know, and, and it's those little things that when put together may help us catch a criminal. So it was easier because with America's Most Wanted, our job was to catch, you know, the bad guys. And so that, but as a regular reporter, when you go in, don't lie to them, be honest with them, say, listen, I know this. And you will find that many parents want to get it off their chest. It's cathartic for them. Treat them with respect and dignity and don't stick the camera in their face and just start blabbing and don't, you know, treat them like you'd want to be treated. There's a concept. And um, when you treat people as they want to be treated, no matter what, you know, be polite. These are some of the things I also touch upon in the book. You can be persistent and be polite. Um, And, you know, that's always worked well for me being confrontational just because you're confrontational with, you know, politicians doesn't mean that you're an ass or that you're rude. I'd I'd far more, I, I, I'm not advocating rudeness is something that Donaldson once said, I don't advocate rudeness. Uh, but I'm far more concerned about uh, reporters who are too disinclined to ask a tough question. So no matter what the situation, you have to be prepared to ask the tough question, but you have to do it, you know, calmly, rationally, and professionally. It's interesting with your book, Free the Press. I think we face a real problem in America, especially with this sort of uh, Trump contingent who they have shades of this, uh, you know, attacking the press uh, in the way that the Germans, uh, the, the Nazis would attack by saying the Lugenpresse, the lying press. At the same time, I, I think there are legitimate criticisms to be made of how the press works. And I was curious as to how you thread that needle, because we don't want to be one of these people that is is yelling the lying press and, uh, oh, it's fake news because it's uh, from the New York Times. Uh, but we also want to be critical when we need to be. Well, I, I approach that in the book this way. There is a problem in the press. The left sees it, the right sees it, and they all misidentify it. The real problem was created by our government. And until we fix it, we're still going to have a problem in the press. We're not slanted to the left. We're not slanted to the right. We're slanted to the money. Fight, fight, fight. That's it. The press goes where the money is. And if you don't like what you read, see or hear most people will turn the channel and find something that they like and unfortunately that means that the press has become less of telling you what you need to know and more of what you want to see or read or hear it's become infotainment and that's because the the government 
has taken away and ruined, taken away all the guardrails and ruined American journalism. American journalism has become tethered to capitalism. And I'm a big fan of capitalism. I want you to buy as many of my books as possible. But journalism should not be tethered to capitalism. When it is, you end up with entertainment instead of information. And that's the problem we have today. And Edward R. Murrow pointed that out at the Radio Television Directors News Association meeting in 1958. And it's in this book as well. When he talked about how we, we are going to become someplace that is merely a place of uh, where we listen to slogans instead of listening to the truth. And that is the truth. That's what we've become. So you mentioned that the government has been involved in this problem, the press, but you're also not, I think, taking this uh, extreme libertarian position where you're saying, oh, it's, it's all the government's fault. You're, you're saying that there is an issue with corporate media. So maybe you could- there's a problem with corporate media. You've got five companies that own everything and they say you're slanted to the left or the right. All these old white guys sitting on the board. That's a problem. Break it up. We can use existing. Look, I, I recommend several ways to solve the problem. First of all, build from the bottom up. We do not support, you know, community journalism. And, and this is the biggest thing, really. The largest problem we have with journalism is we have vast news deserts in this country where there are no newspapers. And that's because state, federal, and local governments have removed existing subsidies for newspapers. For example, public notice ads to let you know what your government's doing, to let you know uh, estate sales, to let you know who the new salesmen are in town. To, that used to be a place where you bound people together in a community. And so, you know, you, lawyers and salesmen would pick up and go, oh, who just got the new job? Oh, who died? Oh, who's, you know, estate is for sale? Who moved? Who bought this? When is the government meeting? What are they talking about? All of these were in public notice ads. And over the years, the government has tried to get away from them because it's too cost too much. No, it was a sub to, for many community newspapers. That was a profit margin for them at the end of the year. Not much more than that. And they were able to stay going because of that. Well, when you take those away, you not only become, you obfuscate the facts and hide what government's doing, you take away the power of the press. You need to reinstitute that. Be nice if, in, you know, if when you filed your income tax every year, as most of us are now doing, you, you filled out a line and showed proof that you, you know, you subscribed to a newspaper and got a hundred dollar, you know, kickback on your, in your income tax, a hundred dollar rebate on your income tax. Oh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll sign up and buy a newspaper. If, if that were done, that's where you start building those small newspapers because most major stories start as local stories. And that is where you start. Then you need a, a national shield law so that reporters do not go to jail if they have confidential sources. Then you need to break up the media monopolies and, and, and with existing legislation that we have, antitrust legislation to be used to break up the media monopolies. So you have more of us and smaller companies that are independent and responsible in their communities. They, that's where you build it. And then finally, you need the fairness doctrine brought back in, into, into play. Because that, that without the fairness doctrine, you have these informational silos where the left stays here, the right stays here, and they don't mix because they don't ever hear what's going on on the other side of the aisle. 
So that's actually a, a, a good point to get into. I wanted to talk about the fairness doctrine. I have a lot of younger listeners that are going off to college now, and they may not be familiar with the fairness doctrine and what happened to it in the 80s with Ronald Reagan. So maybe you could go over that. Well, the fairness doctrine as uh, put in place in 1949 during the Truman administration required broadcasters to be uh, fair and balanced. And they they did this by having a lot of, you know, it wasn't just story driven. It was like you, you would have opposing viewpoints and you would have uh, that they helped build news uh, organizations with the fairness doctrine. And they helped um, people, you know, public service shows and public, you know, and those things came into being because broadcasters were required in matters of politics and of matters of, of public difference to show both sides of the story, which is why, you know, you would have, you know, there's the old Saturday Night Live bit where, you know, Emily Lytello would come on with an opposing viewpoint, you know, and I think you shouldn't be busting school children. You know, she always got it wrong and it was funny and et cetera. And that's, that's an old Saturday Night Live bit. Look it up. I won't even tell you who did it. So, uh, but that kind of stuff we don't have anymore. We don't have opposing viewpoints. We don't have, uh, we don't have public service. We don't, what happened to the public affairs shows, local public affairs shows? We don't have those. We need those. And you can do it on the internet. You can make it uh, responsive to the internet. You just have to have the wherewithal to do it. So the last thing I propose in my book, or one of the first things I propose, but the last thing that I, that I haven't mentioned yet is I think the president of the United States ought to impanel a blue ribbon commission to talk with leaders in this industry and to make sure that public uh, notice ads are kept in. I think you ought to have the small newspapers and small radio stations, small owners brought in and figure out how to make journalism more fair. You take a look at radio. iHeartRadio owns hundreds of of news stations, thousands, I think, across the U.S., and they're all cookie cutters. And it's that chain store uh, type of journalism that's destroying journalism. You can look and Sinclair will produce, you know, a, a news piece, what they call a news piece, and it'll air in one place and air in another place and air in a third place. Well, there's the homogeneity of news has become such that you don't really get news anymore. You get the infotainment. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because I think iHeart actually used to be uh, Clear Channel, which I would say uh, also played a role in this. That's the rise yeah. of Rush Limbaugh and all these other characters. And they started in San Antonio, Texas, where I was working in the 80s. And they grew into a behemoth of unparalleled, psychotic <laughs> Neanderthal business. <laughs> so, yeah, a monolithic power structure. So you also get into uh, a few of the key figures in this sort of sordid story of, of what has gone wrong with the press. And one of them is Roger Ailes. Maybe you could talk about uh, some of the history of Roger Ailes and his involvement in all of this. Well, Roger Ailes is the Antichrist. Um, <laughs> Roger Ailes uh, was a young uh, producer in Philadelphia on the Mike Douglas, Douglas show before it became a national show. Uh, Richard Nixon found him, hated the press and found in Roger Ailes a, uh, someone who could help him defeat the press. And it was Nixon's goal to put together a, and Ailes' goal to put together a conservative network that would preach what they, what the government wanted and not the facts. And, you know, had Nixon had Fox News in the 70s, it's doubtful he would have resigned or been impeached or convicted. Um, 
well, he probably would have been impeached, but probably not convicted. We've become far more divisive because of Roger Ailes. Roger Ailes created Fox News or created the current entity that is Fox News. Um, and with um, an assist. And by the way, Roger Ailes helped Ronald Reagan get elected, who is the worst greaseball that ever was a, a president. He's like a rolling pus ball of, of bad hair and grease. And he became president. And by the way, the other thing that Roger Ailes gave us and that we're still paying the price for today is Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell was the one pickup in 1984 at Reagan's reelection, the supposed landslide, only one. They picked up one seat in the Senate, and that was Mitch McConnell, who did not mind lying to, in order to get elected. And he told us what he was from the very beginning. He was a progressive, middle-of-the-road Republican in Louisville, Kentucky, and was the uh, county executive there. And to get elected, he had to run against D. Huddleston, who had a 94% attendance record, was the darling of the Democratic Party in Kentucky. And he beat him with one ad. Ailes put together an ad of uh, dogs chasing after someone they said was D. Huddleston. And they had uh, coonhounds barking and, and uh, hunters chasing after D. saying, where's our, where's our senator? Where's our senator? He's never around. Well, the fact was he was always around. Fact was, it was a total lie, but it was a comedic uh, video and commercial, and everyone talked about it. Everyone voted for Mitch. We've not been able to get rid of him since. And now, a word from our sponsors. Words make the walls that trick us into complying with stasis. Zen. The Zen of the Other is a work that follows one man as he attempts to find his way through the jumble of modernity that envelops us all and threatens to strangle us in its tentacles longer than night. Call me Ezra. Names are not important. Cast into a world where the liminal overlaps the world of the paranormal philosophical speculation. The shadows, the void are all painted over. The magic of the deep dark night. Ezra Buckley struggling to keep his head above water long enough to pluck a jewel of wisdom from the crown of a forest spirit. The very act of writing down the story in static form, carved into clay and hardened, was in itself an act of black magic. In a world devoid of rites of passage, Ezra finds himself on his own as he is confronted with the very real prospect of having a life-changing liminal experience in the woods of Big Sur, if he can survive it. Back to zero, which for me, those days seemed like where the forces of nature wanted me to reside. Is it even real? Is it the legendary watchers of Big Sur phenomena or something else? Zen is a work that confronts the questions of identity, modernity, life, the other, and the place for rites of passage in the modern world. Where mystery reigns supreme. Zen, the Zen of the other, the audio play. Available now on digital.panicmachine.com, Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and your favorite streaming service. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. 
I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Reeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. It's really interesting, too. At one point in the book, uh, you write that Reagan took the Richard Nixon rap fucking schemes from Watergate to a new level. And you mentioned how uh, there was this media disinformation and, uh, you know, attempts to uh, include placement of pro-contra op-ed pieces in the Post and the New York Times. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about the type of media disinformation that we faced over the decades? Yeah, well, Ronald Reagan set the table Donald Trump ate at. Ronald Reagan is the reason why we have everything we have today. Ronald Reagan is an anathema to the free press, anathema to democracy, was the worst president of my lifetime until Donald Trump and the two uh, uh, Koch brothers, I mean, the two uh, Bush, Bush one and Bush two. There hasn't been a uh, every Republican president since Nixon has been a step down the ladder till we are now mired in a gutter of crap sewage incestuous narcissism and Ronald Reagan helped jump us into that. Ronald Reagan had uh, members of uh, the Republican party members of government dress up as reporters and show up at events. He tried to place ads uh, and propaganda as, as you pointed out as op-ed pieces in major newspapers, Ronald Reagan tried to see how much he could get away with because he too did not trust the press. Although he was a, uh, the first Teflon president, he would grew up knowing the press because he was a Hollywood actor. And, you know, as an actor, people bought his act. He was a con man. He was the worst. And, you know, he helped ruin unions. He destroyed unions. He was without a doubt, the reason why we are where we are today. And also I wanted to get into, you know, going from Reagan uh, to Bush Sr. and Bush Jr., especially Bush Jr., that, that was a very, uh, I remember it being a very scary time. I, I thought a lot of people were capitulating to the sort of Bush agenda immediately after the 2000 election. And I was wondering if you could speak to that, because I know you cover it in the book. Well, uh, the first George Bush uh, was the first one I got in a fight with the president. And um, I was at a, a press conference and you know, he had, you know, the war on drugs. Well, the drugs won. You know, the reason why there was a war on drugs got me. The American public has a demand for drugs instead of making them illegal, driving up the price of them, increasing the violence and creating the problems that have destroyed Central and South America. We would have been better off legalizing them, treating them as, as the uh, social problems they were and are instead of demonizing it and turning people into criminals. I know people that got arrested for a one joint, spent a year in prison. They went in naive kids and came out hardened criminals. 
everything they did as far as, and it was started with Reagan raging the war on drugs as a bullshit war. It was complete garbage. So I'm sitting here at this press conference with seven presidents from, you know, the Western hemisphere going, you know, that we're, we're the war on drugs. And this is great. And we got to do this. And I said, you know, I asked him a question. I said, look, I've gone with DE agents out in the field, other cops. They don't believe the war on drugs can be won. They consider the war on drugs a joke. And they consider this drug summit news, this drug summit uh, here in San Antonio, a joke that he told me to sit down, didn't like it. Um, so that all I can say is I would ask that question today. It is a joke. There's, it has the American demand for drugs is the biggest reason for the problems in Central and South America, which lead to the illegal immigration that the Republicans want to stop. If you'll want to stop it, quit starting it. Our, you know, it was Smedley Butler, a, a, a general in the Marine Corps, who in 1926, you know, wrote a book about how he had promoted war and for 30 years had had led the war against, you know, and, and made the world safe for American business in Central and South America. War is a racket. War is a racket. And we we created the problem. Every time they say they're going to have and even this current president, Biden, has said, you know, I'm going to put. Uh, Kamala Harris of EP in charge of figuring out the root causes of the problems in South and Central America. We know what the root causes are. We're the cause. It's that's that's that we want cheap labor in our drugs. And so we're going to go down and make it, you know, that's what kills me. The, the, the real illegal immigration crisis occurred in the seventies and early eighties when the oil economy crashed in Mexico, people had no way to make a living. So they're walking across the border looking for jobs. Now, it was illegal for them to do it, but until the Simpson-Mazzoli Act in 1986, it was legal to hire them. So all the big farms, the, the horse farms, they went on a circuit, construction, uh, you know, farmers who need their, you know, their, their produce picked in the fields. They all hired them, paid them under the table. Nobody cared, Right. So then they make it illegal. The Simpson-Mazzoli bill makes it legal. But how many large businesses in the United States have been prosecuted for that? Nobody wants to pay $8 for a, a, a tomato. So you want the cheap labor. Everybody wants their drugs. They have only learned now that if you legalize weed, ooh, wow, well, maybe there's some money in that. Maybe we should do that. When the government finds a revenue stream, they never let go of it. So eventually all drugs will be legalized. It'll be treated as a social problem. It is. And maybe just maybe the South and Central American people will be able to gain back some footing of independence from from, you know, narcotics traffickers who are making so much money off of the, the violence and the expense of drugs. It's interesting, too, uh, with your sort of uh, I would call it the the confrontation with George H.W. Bush. You're you're asking the question. And yet I, I'm seeing on. Uh, Google, when I'm looking this up, uh, some of the headlines say uh, uh, reporter Brian Karen Badgers, uh, President H.W. Bush in 1992. And I'm thinking to myself, I mean, he's just asking a question. I'm not sure it's it's badgering. But could you talk a little bit about the uh, the fallout from that and H.W. Bush's reaction to it? Oh, he hated me. I got canned from my local uh, job uh, in television there. And then I got that's when I got a call from a uh, the executive producer at uh, America's Most Wanted said, I have a real need for an arrogant, obnoxious investigative reporter. Are you free? And I said, Mom, is that you? <laughs> so 
you know, it turns out they flew me up here to DC and I've been here ever since. Uh, so Lance Heflin, who's no longer with us, God rest his soul was, a uh, the guy who recognized the skills and hired me to do the job. Uh, it ended up all right for me, but uh, it didn't end up all right for the country. We still ignore this issue and we still don't understand this issue. And we have, you know, roving caravans. When you listen to this crap, the, 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 the illegal immigration is nothing like it was in the seventies or eighties, nothing at all like it was. But what, what we have is this, overwhelming rhetoric where people think two contrary thoughts. They think these roving band of violent immigrants are coming across the country to sap us of our social services and, 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 and take, you know, uh, unemployment while at the same time taking away all the jobs. I mean, it doesn't make a damn bit of sense, but it's, this is the same rhetoric that you get when it comes to, for example, talking about the coronavirus, you know, it's a hoax. You don't need it. Oh, by the way, I created the vaccine for it. I'm the guy. I mean, it's 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 Orwellian. You can hold two conflicting thoughts in your head and think that they're both true and they're both bullshit. Look, th that's what politics has become over the last 40 years. And it's part and parcel because we aren't there to hold them accountable anymore. And we need to be. And, and if if we could, I, I mentioned George W. Bush. And for me, that was a, a very frightening time in a lot of ways. And I was very young, maybe naive. But, you know, th there was the chaos of the 2000 election. You know, you had the Brooks Brothers riot, the, the issues with, uh, you know, uh, quote unquote, well, hanging chads. And also, I think Bush. a lot of people capitulated uh, to this sort of Bush agenda. Well, I, I knew the second Bush when he was the governor down in Texas and um he's a very friendly, amiable guy. Uh, and, and, you know, we would go to Crawford ranch and there were, you know, he was, he, you know, always was like, Hey Brian, you know, it, a, a nice friendly. And by the way, one of the few people was ever on time as president. When I covered briefings, his, his briefings usually, usually started on time, but um, he surrounded himself with some of his father's friends. And then of course there was Dick uh, fascist Cheney that was there. And I think what people bought into, I think that was a coup. I, I think that was a the first coup in the United States. And it was all, all based on hanging chads. But even George W. Bush had a line that he would not cross. And he did care about the tenets of, of democracy. Now, he'd bend a few rules as all presidents have been known to do, but I never saw him actually, you know, I never saw him while he was in the white house. I don't know before he was elected. I don't know about the election itself. I can't speak to that, but in the white house, he was many things, but he was never as seditious or, or traitorous or treasonous as Donald Trump, but he was the worst president in my lifetime until Donald Trump. Like I said, Nixon was the worst. Then Reagan was the worst. Then George, Herbert Walker Bush wasn't the worst. He was mediocre, but he was, he, you know, he wasn't, his son was the worst. And now Trump was the worst. So, you know, the four worst presidents in, in the history of the Republic have been during my lifetime. And since I've been able to vote and I'm not taking any of the blame. Well, so, so with regards to th those Bush years, 
I think a story that really stands out to me is the whole, uh, the Judith Miller fiasco. And I was wondering if you could comment on that. I know you talk a little bit about it in the book. And I think uh, it's worth revisiting, especially in light of things like um, the Still Dossier, which I know you wrote about recently in, in Salon.com. Well, I mean, are you talking uh, about the mistakes made in the run up to the. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the mistakes and, and what effect that's had on uh, trust in the institution well, of our press. What that's more illustrative of is how we trust the, the largest uh, members of the journalistic community and don't trust the uh, firebrands and the people who actually break the news because, you know, there's the, the wonderful, uh, I think it was um, Rob Reiner who recently did the story about the people who broke, did the movie about the uh, spotlight who broke the story of the problems of that, of, of that the fact that there were no weapons of mass destruction and shows that, and it wasn't just Judy Miller, it was others who were, who were fooled by the government, by the federal government into believing that there were, and there was all of a sudden we, there were these aluminum tubes and, you know, and that, that proved that there was a problem. Meanwhile, you've got these other guys going, well, there are no weapons of mass destruction. And of course there weren't. And it was all, all just bullshit, just created simply because uh, Dick Cheney wanted to go back to the Gulf War and, and stomp them because they didn't like the fact that Herbert Walker Bush left before we stomped Saddam Hussein into, you know, uh, chowder. I mean, we, we had a job to do, which was free Kuwait. We did it. We left. Um, and by the way, that was one of, you know, the, I'll never forgive the, the military for that. I'll never forgive them for that because that was one of the things there was a coalition with a set goal in mind. They did it. They did it admirably. I was in Kuwait and we had such goodwill from the Kuwaitis and from Saudi Arabia and from, you know, and, and from all those countries in there because we did the honorable thing. Saddam Hussein came through and took them over and we came in and freed them. It's the first time in my life I ever saw pro-American graffiti. I had people in Kuwait offering me dinner. So oh, you're a reporter from the United States. You're one of the good guys. Thank you so much. I, I produced two documentaries on it and watching the, it, it was the, the, the military tried so hard to keep us from going and covering that war because they were afraid we were going to turn it in. And a lot of them were in a lot of members of the rank and file thought we were going to turn it into a, another Vietnam. Well, no, it wasn't another Vietnam. It was something altogether different. And we never got to report on that as well as we should have. And the military did themselves a huge disservice by uh, conducting business the way they did. And I'll never forgive them for that. And so when the second Gulf War came around, the, the, one of the reasons why it came around is because we didn't adequately report on the first one. And there was still a raw taste in the mouth of politicians who wanted to finish up business and go in there and make them pay. And so they, they uh, promoted a lie to get us to go back to the Gulf and do what we didn't do the first time around. In regards to what we were saying earlier, that we had some journalists that were duped uh, with the second uh, Gulf War, I, I think we also had that with, you know, the the uh, famous uh, Iraqi baby incubator story. Why are there times where journalists can get duped by these things? Because to go back to H.L. Mencken, there's nothing easier in the world than the dupe a reporter. Most of us don't have. Look, man, 
you have to have some experience to cover these heady issues. Now, if you're if all you're doing is chasing press conferences and your sources who are feeding you full of crap, you don't know, you can't smell the bullshit when it's coming. Now, you know, anyone can be duped. Everyone has. But a good reporter will go back at it and find the truth and won't rest until the truth is told. And that is what's missing today is a wherewithal, the, the, you know, the, the mindset. And it's not just of reporters, man. It's the management because management dictates this crap and management doesn't want anything more than what will sell. And that is the problem. So why are we duped? Well, sometimes we go along with it because, you know, the guy who runs the network is best friends with the guy who runs the government. The guy who's the head of the war department is best friends with the, you know, the, the chief, the CEO of your, of your company. So it doesn't get done. The independence in journalism just does not exist. I mentioned uh, a bit ago, the, the still dossier, and I know you've been critical of uh, the way in which some people uh, didn't question that story or the dubious aspects of it. Uh, Michael Isakoff as well has been critical. Do you think it was just a matter of, well, this sounds like an entertaining story, you know, Donald Trump and, and hookers and P-tapes and compromise. Why do you think uh, that story uh, had so many legs and that there's, I think there's not been a lot of self-reflection about it. Because Donald Trump is a prick and a narcissist and a liar. And, 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 because when you see something that says Donald Trump is a prick and a narcissist and a liar, since you know Donald Trump is a prick and a narcissist and a liar, you tend to believe other papers that come out and say, hey, look, he is a prick and a narcissist and a liar. Well, he is all those things, but they still screwed up the Steele dossier uh, and, and horribly so. And even the very first reports about the Steele dossier that came out said, these are based on unvetted facts. Well, as a reporter and as a manager in the business, if I had a reporter come to me with unadvented facts, well, somebody else is going to break it. Fine. Let someone else break it. We're not because it's crap. Until it's vetted, until I know for a fact that it is a fact, those were all unsubstantiated rumors. They were all part of, of that steel dossier was crap that hadn't been confirmed. It was all rumors. And it said so in the very beginning and still people ran with it. And then after that, it took a life of its own. You know, I, I often have, and this is the biggest thing you need. You need managers who know what you need, a copy editor. To be a journalist, you need a copy editor. To be a good journalist, you need a copy editor and, and a city editor or a managing editor. You need at least two pairs of eyes on your crap other than you who know what they're doing. I've had reporters come to me that I've managed and they go, well, I think this or I think that. And I go, I don't give a shit what you think. I barely care what I think. What do you know? What is a fact? What do you know? Everybody wants to write opinion pieces. How many times do you watch the, the network newscasts today and you know, there's one anchor and three people sitting on a panel? That's not news. That's, you know, four people arguing for five minutes and then you end up at the same place you were when it started. That's, I've been on the shows a lot. Crap, pure crap. That's not journalism. But journalism also costs money, and what and it's it's not cost effective. Those shows which get people screaming over the heat are a lot more productive, as far as money goes, 
than good, honest, decent, hard reporting, which takes time and a lot of money to do. And the payoff is not in cash. It's in informing your fellow citizens. That's why you cannot link journalism, again, cannot link good journalism to capitalism. You've got to help it out or it's going to always be the crap that it is. Just a few more points I wanted to touch on here. Uh, since you mentioned uh, the, the sort of combat television we have now, we've had it with you know Bill O'Reilly types and Tucker Carlson types. Uh, I, I think we could see a lot of the origins of that in like Morton Downey Jr. in the 80s. Do you think a lot of this we should have seen coming down the pike? We did see it coming. In fact, we were warned about it and we ignored it <laughs> because it made money. And the people who warned us about it were the were the stalwarts, the heavy hitters in our business. It was it was Dan Rather. It was uh, uh, Sam Donaldson. It was Tom Brokaw. It was Helen Thomas. It, it was Edward R. Murrow in 1950 freaking eight. We've known about it and we've ignored the criticism because green is the color that we love. And so we keep going after the buck and keep screwing ourselves in the process. It, it, you know, it, look, once you shoot yourself in the foot, you should realize that it hurts and it's not profitable. But when you keep shooting yourself in the foot, that's delusional to, to think that you're going to get any other result out of journalism the way it's set up today, other than what we get to defend it is delusional. Or you're the guy who's running the shop and makes the money and wants to delude people. That's the, those are the only two pop potentials left. Just ask Pickle Rick. So out of curiosity, you know, I, I've heard people say in the past, I like the idea of the fourth estate. And I know a lot of people use that word ironically now, or they say, oh, uh, that's an outdated concept. You know, you're, you're being idealistic. But I think, you know, in a way we need a return of, of something like the idea of the fourth estate. Well, yeah, we have what's left of it. I mean, it's not as far gone as the Republican Party. Uh, you know, there is you know, the fascist party is all that's left of the Republicans. Uh, you know, hi, fascist, fascist old white people are us is what they ought to call the Republican Party. Those screwballs, nuts, idiots, delusional, you know, morons. But what's left of the press, there is still some hope of reviving the press. And that's what the book's about, about the ways to do it from you know, small things that you can do to the large things that can be done. And it, I, I really do believe if we could, and, and this isn't the, con, the controversial part of the book is breaking up media monopolies because that's a very difficult task to do. But the easy thing to do, the easiest thing to do, and the thing that would be the best thing to do is to put money and, and, and dedicate time and effort to community journalism. And that's the backbone of all journalism. There's your fourth estate. That's what you need. You need, look, everybody, like I said earlier, everybody has things in common. We have more in common with each other than we have different from one another. And we don't see that. Our, our, our communal concerns, we don't see at the highest level. You see them in your local newspapers and your local radio stations and your local websites and your podcast, and there's no money in it to do it. So unless you infuse it with money, make it a nonprofit, which I haven't seen a 
a real viable way to make local news a nonprofit oriented thing. But if you gave support, you know, tax breaks, property breaks, uh, all of those things and much more loan interest, low, low interest loans, things like that to, to local small publishers and uh, producers and broadcasters, then by God, you'll see something good. So it sounds like the bottom line is that we sort of need a return of, of, of local news and local journalism. Yeah, and reporting. built from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on, how many local news? Uh, let me tell you, some of the best reporters I've ever worked with uh, are guys that, you know, cover local high school sports or cover local city council meetings or, or the local, you know, uh, you go to the local uh, library meeting or the, the local, uh, in, any of those small local meetings that you go to, you know, PTA, the pool board, all of those things, man, reporters need to, A, they, they know their sources real well, B, they're, most importantly, they're a part of the community, and C, they know how to, their way around the city council, the city clerk's office. They know who to talk to to find out what's going on. They know where the, the paperwork is. Those people are much better than a, a reporter who sits in a freaking, you know, the, the Brady briefing room and listens to a debriefing once a day. What the hell do they know about reporting? They're stenographers. There are a lot of good reporters in there, but there are a lot of stenographers. You can't be a stenographer at a local uh, newspaper or a local radio station. You have to be a reporter on a beat. Those are the best people I've ever worked with. We need more of them. Just a, a last thing or two here. I was really interested in the portion of your book where you talked about uh, your reporting on the FAA in the aftermath of 9-11. I was wondering, how do you cover uh, a story like that? Because, uh, you know, it, it seems like it's a, it's a big thing. It's a very big story. There's, you know, uh, sort of scandalous details involved. How do you cover a story like that? Well, again, no, FOIA's help. Freedom of information requests help. Knowing where to find information helps. Experience helps. Uh, having sources in the FAA, having sources in Congress help. Uh, be, knowing how to do research always helps. But there's the people element that you can't forget. It's that people element that you, you, you need to know how to talk to people and how to find out information from them. That's the best help for any story that I could ever give advice I'd ever give to any reporter. Get off your ass. Go knock on doors. Go talk to people. Uh, one of the things I always do as a reporter is, you know, somebody says, well, this is what I know. And I go, well, how, how do you know it? Many lies have a kernel of truth to them. You need to know how have a critical mind and look for the truth. That was actually leading to the uh, other thing I wanted to ask you here at the end is, uh, how do you go about talking to some of the people you've talked to? I mean, I, I was really interested in hearing more about, uh, you know, you're interviewing someone like uh, G. Gordon Liddy, who's a, who's a very slippery, you know, character from Watergate <laughs> for my listeners, uh, the younger ones. Liddy is like, a, you know, He's like a character out of a movie or something. Well, I think he was a character in a movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, G. Gordon Liddy, actually, I liked him. <laughs> and he was his, he was the Watergate burglar who told, uh, I think he told H.L. Haldeman or, or some member of the, the, hell, he may have told the president himself, Nixon himself, he said, if you want me to, Take a bullet. I'll stand on the street corner. Just put one in my brain pan. I mean, he's the guy who held his hand to a fire and to prove he was a tough guy. And the thing where we got along and out, we didn't agree on anything politically. 
But Gordon was also a pretty amiable guy. He was a man's man. And he got along with me because I had gone to jail to uh, protect a source and wouldn't give up. You know, I wasn't a punk and wouldn't bitch out. And he did. That's what he thought he did. You know, I I'm I'm not giving up my I'm going to jail. So he and I had simpatico as you know, he wasn't a snitch. He went to jail because he wasn't a snitch. And the way he saw me was I went to jail because I wasn't a snitch. Um, so we got along, but the best way, the best way to talk to anyone is find things that you have in common and don't be afraid to ask them the tough questions and let them know, look, I'm going to ask you some tough questions, but here's why. And here's what they are. And now for the people, there's some people you're never going to reach and they'll sit down for a, a, an interview with you. And then they'll, you know, walk off the interview, you ask them a hard question. And I've had that happen, but you got, you still ask the question. I mean, the most infamous thing that ever happened to me, I was up in Milwaukee and I was interviewing the warden of Tachita prison because one woman who had, it was a woman's prison and this convicted murderer had uh, was, was on honor detail or something. And she walked out and walked over the back wall. The back wall was only about six feet and she just hiked herself over the wall and took off. And uh, I said, well, you know, uh, you relied on the honor system to let this, I mean, didn't she prove that she was, uh, you know, not honorable because she, you know, murdered somebody. And (laughs) the, the warden said, well, I know why you're asking this question. And I quit. And she took the microphone off her lapel and walked off. So I called the head of the prisons, the secretary of state in uh, uh, Wisconsin. I said, uh, hey, look, she just walked off and quit the interview. And she goes, oh, no, no, <laughs> we just got her facts. Uh, she did more than that. She quit her job. So I had asked her the question about uh, a prisoner walking away free and she quit her damn job. And I, w- I was surprised by it. But uh, I mean, you got to be prepared for it. Don't stop. Ask the questions. Be professional, be polite, but never be afraid to ask a question. And if they get combative with you, just because you, uh, you know, you have to ask them a tough question, you're not in the wrong by doing it. Now, I'm assuming there's listeners, especially young journalists that listen to my show, that uh, they hear uh, your complaints about um, inexperienced uh, journalists, and they may think you're you're going after the the young lions, so to speak. But I don't think that's what you're doing. I think you think there needs to be new blood, but absolutely. Um, uh, our generation has screwed it up. All I'm asking you to do is as a young reporter is to get knowledge and get experience and be wise, be curious, make good decisions, vet your facts, those things we don't do. And you can't blame a young reporter for taking a job in a white house. If I'm 25 years old and somebody offered me the job in a white house, hell yeah, I'm going. But what do you do when you get there? Don't be like everybody else. You, you've got an opportunity. Make the most of that opportunity. Don't be afraid to stand out. Don't be afraid to stand differently. Don't be afraid to move in different circles. Don't go with the flow. Create your own flow. And that's the, the biggest thing to tell young reporters. You, you know, it, this, this job has always attracted independent smart people. The challenge is keeping them. And the young reporter, most of the time, who is that independent guy 
or, or, or woman coming into this job, they end up being able to make more money elsewhere and they don't stay. That's the bottom line. The people who stay are not the ones that, uh, you know, the ones who don't stay are not the ones who, who, who need the counseling. It's those who do. So I'm not in any way disparaging a lack of, of experiencing. I, I'm disparaging a lack of character. And there are plenty of old parts that do that, too. Well, Brian Karam, I really want to thank you for coming on Parallax News. I want you to let my listeners know how they can get the book. And also, uh, since we're up against the, well, we're, we're a few weeks past the January uh, 6th Capitol breach anniversary, I was wondering, since you were in D.C. at the time, uh, what are your thoughts on the insurrection? I think they ought to investigate, indict, prosecute every single human being that was involved in it, all the way from the most minor combatant all the way up to the president, the ex-president of the United States. I had never seen a Confederate flag fly in our capital before. Not even during the Civil War did that happen. That was an insurrection. That was an attempt to overthrow a legitimate uh, election. It was anathema to what democracy stands for. It was the worst thing that ever happened in our country in my lifetime. I've covered wars. I've covered riots. I never felt as fearful for my own life as I did on that day. It should not happen again. This should not be a preamble to something else like the, the push was with, with uh, the Nazis. This needs to be put in its ground now. And that everyone in Congress who was involved needs to be expelled. And everyone who uh, needs to be, you know, prosecuted for their role in it. That should not happen. I had my life threatened. I had uh, friends of mine who were sucker punched by uh, combatants that day. There were some people that, you know, went there painting their face and their bellies like they were going to an NFL game. But they all got involved in the violence. And the hard cases that drove them on, it became a groupthink thing. I was there when they erected the scaffold. They would have killed Mike Pence if they had gotten him. They would have killed Nancy Pelosi if they had gotten her. These people were deadly serious, and they need to be held accountable for it. And we should not rest until we hold every single one of them accountable. And then if you want the book, you can find it wherever fine books are sold. You can find it at Amazon or at your independent bookseller. You can see me on my podcast, Just Ask the Question, or read me in salon.com every week. It's always fun. Thank you again, Brian Karam. Thank you, man. Good to be here. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Brian Karam, a rather dogged reporter of an old school variety with a storied career. Hopefully, you'll consider picking up Brian's book, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, consider supporting me at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. You can make monthly donations of one five, ten, fifteen, or a hundred dollars. Any amount will help, and of course, at the ten dollar tier and above, you get a producer's credit shout-out. So, producer's credit shout-outs to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, 
David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, and Matthew Ho. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing this like right. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm... I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.